0: It's a pleasure to welcome Philip Loring back to CKNW Weekend Mornings. Professor Loring is at the University of Guelph, where he is an Associate Professor and a rel Chair in Food Policy and Society, and has a whole lot of interest in the fishery. Welcome back, Philip. It's good to have you back with us.
1: Uh, good morning, Sterling. How
0: are you? I am well, thank you, sir. We we spoke a few weeks ago. You gave us a, a bit of an overview as to the impact of COVID-19 on the fishery, both here on the West Coast and, and on our other coasts as well, specifically the Atlantic Coast. In the interim, since we've spoken, Philip, have there been any major changes to, for example, the government's approach to the fishery? I know we had some subsidies announced for the food and agribusiness uh, to the tune of a quarter billion dollar a few days ago did any of that in any way affect the fishery
1: well not directly and i think that's because fisheries fall under another ministry and sure. there's going to be different um approaches uh, from the federal government there and so so i, I think uh, south of the border we've also seen some action for fisheries though not necessarily the kind of action that's going to help um, local and small-scale operators, and and so I think there's still a, a, a need or a call among fishermen to, to say, hey, we're still sort of bearing the brunt of this, and especially people in communities where the fisheries are landed, where the processing facilities are, and in the more the smaller scale communities.
0: Interesting. Now, you've also, along with a couple of colleagues, uh, well, kind of uh, formed a bit of a com- competitor to us here, Philip. You've got Coastal <laughs> Roots Radio. You've got a podcast going on now. I believe you're two or three episodes into it uh, and the podcast talks mm-hmm. about changing the seafood economy and this is something that you and I talked about a few weeks ago and it's the whole matter of uh, community supported fisheries and And explain that again because this is a key to what you and your colleagues and many people in the fisheries uh, Canadian and American see as the future of the business so let's talk about community supported fisheries for a moment bring us up to speed with the concept again
1: Sure. And so a number of, of fishermen around North America and Canada and the U.S. are already finding sort of instead of just taking all their fish and selling it to a large-scale processor, they're they're developing alternative ways to market to customers, whether it's direct marketing or through cooperatives and selling at farmer's markets or selling online. And generally, this people are calling this community-supported fisheries. And, and that describes a, a, sort of a part of this, this sector where people are actually – asking people in their community to buy shares, mm-hmm. and to pay up front um, when the season is starting for seafood, and then you sort of get the seafood that they catch throughout the season or you pick from what they catch. Uh, the, the largest in the nation, I think, in Canada right now is called Skipper Autos, which operates out on the West Coast there. But there's, there's hundreds of fishermen working this way and, and finding ways with websites or farmers markets or dockside markets to sort of direct market their catch.
0: Yeah, and interesting.
1: That, that business model is proving really resilient to the supply disruption that we're seeing from the
0: pandemic, and that's what I was going to get to next, Philip, because we talked about this, uh, and and you know, regrettably, we're seeing supplies, we're seeing milk being destroyed, some uh, agricultural products, mm-hmm. potatoes, and others simply being destroyed because of the lack of demand. Particularly, of course, from the restaurant and the hospitality industries, it's not there, and a lot of the of the supply is built specifically to deal with that. That demand. And when it goes away, uh, in, in, there's a, a horrible waste of food in some cases. So what do we know? What, what do you know about the lack of demand for products, seafood and fish products? Obviously, it's it's reduced by the same factor as demand right across the service sectors.
1: It, it is. And it's been an interesting sort of shift because in the households, people are eating more seafood right now. Mm-hmm. Um as, as a result of staying home. And and so that's been an interesting shift. But for food service, for restaurants, for fisher fisher folks who sell to those those clients, they're definitely seeing a, a loss of demand and a drop in the price of halibut from in the area of five dollars plus per pound to two something per pound this year, mm-hmm. some more drops in and the, the, the price fishermen are being paid for the things that go to food service and restaurants. But but an interesting thing about seafood, the seafood sector is that a lot of it gets frozen. Even the small-scale guys, what they're doing is they're flash-freezing it now, which really maintains that fresh quality when, when you thaw and eat it. And so a number of these smaller-scale marketing operations, they go out, they catch all their fish, and they freeze it, and then they sell it throughout the year. And so there is a concern that more, pe- more of the fishing industry is going to start freezing and create something of a glut of frozen fish right. storage that, that will then, you know, where's it going to go? What's it going to do to price? But, but right now, it seems like because that in this, this, this part of the food sector is already sort of geared around freezing and selling, that, that it's... it's been able to take some of this challenge
0: interesting Philip what do they do with uh, if they're if they're flash freezing it's a wonderful technique by the way I agree with you completely it's it does preserve the incredible freshness pull it out of the water and flash freeze it and then it's it's almost when you when you thought it out it's almost though it's, it's it's freshly caught it's remarkably good but uh, what what, I, what I'm thinking about here is the added perhaps economic stress in some cases Philip of storing all of this stuff if you're out there hauling in wonderful catches and flat fresh, flash freezing them easy for me to say at six thirty eight in the morning <laughs> uh, but if if you are we're so you would have to in some way arrange for storage of this uh, of this material uh, so that you can sell it over a prolonged period of time to your members or other people who are in your support group
1: right and so if you're already set up with facilities to do that you're in a pretty good Position, I think that's actually going to be where we see some of the support from the federal government,
0: uh-huh. with okay.
1: freezing and storing and the logistics and sort of operations around uh, not losing the fishing season, but finding something to do with the fishing in the meantime. I, I, so, so that's the kind of economic support um, that I think we're going to find some people need.
0: So is this then, uh, are you still optimistic, Professor Loring, that the feds are going to come through? As you mentioned, the fishery hasn't been singled out at all, and it is decidedly under a different department and minister. Are you anticipating some relief from Ottawa for the fishery?
1: Uh, yeah, I would be surprised if we don't see something. I mean, we fisheries, you know, Canada has, has large standing sort of um, as a fishing nation in the world, and, and that doesn't go unnoticed mm-hmm. at the federal level. So I'd be surprised to not see something because it's such a large part of our economy and our
0: culture. And based on the uh, ongoing contact you have with people in the business all over the country, Philip, how important and how needed is that anticipated relief? Uh,
1: it's pretty significant. It's on people's minds. They, they, you know, they're also, you know, sort of they're taking some risks here. Some folks who are trying to pivot and and do things a little bit differently. And so, uh, there's some risk taking and there's some concern. And so, I think federal support uh, would make people a little bit more comfortable with with sort of sticking their necks out, so to speak, and trying something new. And 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 then in the long term, sort of helping that turn. You know, looking at what happened and saying, hey, these are the aspects of our seafood system that we're most resilient. How do we foster that? How do we develop around that and empower more people to sort of build those business models into
0: their operations? How do people, the consumers, listening to you and me right now, for example, Philip, how do we, the consumer, the Canadian consumer, get in a position or strengthen our position with respect to being able to support the fishery? I mean, obviously, buy more salmon, buy more (laughs) seafood products. Of course, that's the obvious response. But is there anything else we can do?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the sort of looking at the, at the alternative approach to buying it, not just going and buying more, but, but, you know, looking up networks like Local Catch or looking up some of these other cooperatives of fishermen and seeing, you know, what do I think about maybe buying a little bit of seafood and, and at a time and keeping it in my freezer through the summer? Or what do I think about this alternative approach, getting it to delivered deliver to my door instead of going to a seafood counter? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a lot more common, you know, sort of, when you live out, say, in Vancouver, it's a little bit more common to go to a fish market or or to already be working with with a with a fisherman but but folks throughout Canada may not be doing that right and so so I think being willing to to try that out and that's what we're seeing is more and more, what we're hearing from fishermen is that more and more customers are realizing hey, this is a totally, it's different, but it's a totally new way to buy fish, and I kind of
0: like it. Interesting stuff, and it's a great concept, and if you'd like to learn more, uh, you can check out an episode of uh, Philip's podcast, uh, uh, Social (laughs) Fish-tancing. Coastal Roots Radio is the podcast. It's episode three right now, isn't it, Phil? Yeah, and number four comes out on Tuesday. Excellent. Well, it's it's uh, I listened to uh, episode three last night, and uh, it's uh, very entertaining. And uh, I love some of the stuff you're doing. And I hope more of our uh, our audience tunes into and finds ways to connect. And, of course, here, as you you mentioned, we're we're right in the fisheries in our front yard here. So it's a little easier for us, and we're pretty enthusiastic supporters. But this is another way to be even more supportive of our fishery. Great to have you back with us this morning, Philip. We must do this again, too.
1: I'd love to. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on again.
0: Okay, good to have you with us. Philip Loring from the University of Guelph. And uh, the podcast is called Coastal Roots Radio. Google it. It's kind of entertaining. At a time when it may be more difficult than usual to see a doctor and Canadian efforts to flatten the coronavirus curve, pharmacists continue, be to, continue rather, to be the country's most accessible health care providers. From coast to coast to coast, pharmacists are doing whatever it takes to balance providing care and offering direction to Canadians in need. Here to talk about what pharmacists are doing and how they're stepping up to help local residents, during the COVID Nineteen pandemic is Mona Kwong, who is the owner of a PharmaSave store right downtown in Vancouver on Howe Street. Ms. Kwong, Mona, good morning and welcome.
2: Morning, Sterling. How are you?
0: I'm fine, thanks, Mona. Now, tell us where your store is first. Give us a, 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 uh, an indicator here. It's
2: a very cute store. <laughs> well, I'm biased, right? Of course. Uh, it's on uh, Howe and Helmkin, two blocks from uh, the law courts.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I know exactly where you are. So, let's talk uh, Manitoba. Yesterday made the headlines here on Global News because they decided to lift the one month cap on prescription renewals. Now, we knew, Mona, that Mm -hmm. in, in some provinces this had been enacted. Have we been under the same restrictions here in B.C.?
2: No, it really depends. Uh, BC was quite liberal where um, it really depending on the situation in small towns, large towns, uh, whether or not that needed to be done. Uh, but definitely pharmacists uh, have always taken all necessary steps, monitoring, managing drug supply, even before this pandemic happened, just to make sure that um, patients have all the medications they need when yeah. they need
0: it. Yeah, mm-hmm. good, good point. But when, yeah. when, when we saw some provinces going to this extent, Mona, of yep. lim- limiting percentage. Pres- prescription renewals to one month at a time in uh, you know a lot of people inferred from that rule that oh my gosh the drug supply must be really threatened has Mm -hmm. it has it ever been as dire as some people have imagined it to be
2: it just needed to be shifted, similar like grocery stores, right? You saw um, toilet paper not being there, for sure. example. Uh, it's just that um, there was some more usage than usual, um, and so there needed to be a spread out of the wholesalers as well. So the wholesalers were also working very diligently in the background, trying to ensure that the supply chain was met too. And then, as you know, also delivery drivers had to go out, etc. exactly the same as pharmacy medications.
0: Sure, okay. So yeah. now... Uh, I'm. When uh, when a person is uh, their prescription runs out and they need to have it renewed, and of course we're still and, and it's going to ease in a few days. I think a week Tuesday after the long weekend, we're under a slightly different uh, regime in terms of what we can do and where we can go. But for the moment, we're most mostly supposed to stay home. So, uh, are there uh, prescription deliveries? Has that become a big thing? Is in over the past couple of months?
2: Uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, in about probably half an hour, I have to go uh, visit some seniors as well. Um, it has increased uh, just to ensure that people that are you know more prone to being sick or have chronic diseases, they stay at home to be safe. So we have seen an increase in deliveries. The other thing is some of their colleagues or friends have actually, family members, have come in to pick up some medications for patients as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that's, of course, perfectly legal if uh, you're, you're able to pick up uh, some medication for a, a member of your family, uh, then that's that's uh, uh, that's also extremely helpful, I would think, right?
2: It is helpful, and then usually there's sign-offs, and you know uh, the patient would call beforehand just to make sure uh, that the individual can pick up the medications.
0: Right. Sure. So back mm-hmm. to this, back to this whole drug supply for another moment or two, if you yeah. don't mind, Mona, because people are legitimately concerned. I mm-hmm. mean, here we have this this mysterious new global outbreak. That we still don't know a great deal about, despite the fact that our very best minds are working frantically on it. We still have no resolution to it. And and so because of that, we get nervous about, well, what are we going to do if... And one of those ifs is, well, if I don't have my blood pressure medication anymore or that kind of thing. So I think a little a little reassurance would go a long way this morning here, Mona.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the same as before, if there's um, medications missing or you're, you're concerned, call your pharmacist. Um, And then we can walk you through what's been happening. Um, Even before this pandemic happened, there were some shortages here and there for certain types of medications. But there are many similar medications that uh, one can be switched to in in consultation with your prescriber or your nurse, for example. Uh, But that's a lot of the background work we've always done as pharmacists to be almost like sleuth to um, ensure that uh, the individual gets the medications that
0: they need. One of the things that pharmacists have been doing more of in the past couple of years after decades of lobbying, finally successfully, is having one-on-one consultation events with, with their customers and clients. Uh, and I would imagine, given the fact that it has become even more difficult to see a doctor during the last couple of months in this COVID-19, that pharmacy consulting moments have increased. Is that the case?
2: Yeah, pharmacy consulting moments have increased on the phone for sure. Um, The issue, of course, that's something that... our associations can look into is billing, as always, uh, simply because it has to be face to face. But that's another issue. However, that being said, um, on the phone, uh, we have patients reaching out to us for sure. We go through medications. We go through a lot of questions about what is COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. what does that mean for me, what if I decide to go out, um, can I go out? So, so we do a lot of education in terms of being very patient-specific on what an individual can do. For example, should I go to the emergency room or not? And um, I have reassured a lot of individuals, a lot of patients, that it is okay to go to the emergency room if you need to because there is availability of space for you yep. if you need it. Um, really, really important. Um, and often, um, we're the first calls to ask that question or I've actually had a couple of patients come in and say, well, what do I need to do? And I have called our, our um, paramedic colleagues in uh, because they were in a situation that, that deemed uh, it necessary to to call uh, our paramedics. Yeah, Mona,
0: I need to take a break here. But before we do, we need to just pause for a second and, and, and reiterate the point that you've just made, because it is being backed up by quite a large number of emergency room doctors and providers. They are astonished at how few non-COVID cases they're seeing at British Columbia hospitals these days and uh, know for a fact that a lot of people who should be coming to the emergency room because they have an actual medical emergency aren't because they're terrified of a blocking space for someone who may have covid and may need to be there even more than they do and also out of a, a pure fear of catching the blinken disease while they're at the hospital being very vulnerable so yeah. this is this is uh, i think we're we're going to see a, a surge in uh, emergency room visits, and I guess some of those people talk to their pharmacist before they finally make the big decision to just go to the darn hospital.
2: Yeah, really important to,
0: to um, go in if you need to. Mona Kwong is on the line. Mona is a pharmacist and runs the shop down that uh, Howe Street in Helmiken in downtown Vancouver. Uh, Mona, just before we talk about testing, what sort of changes have you had to make and other pharmacists in your own facilities to just carry on as a very essential service during this pandemic? You've had to modify your workplaces.
2: Yeah, we did. Um, we have plexiglass in, so we're kind of like in a fishbowl now. Um, and definitely we have, you know, tape lines the same as groceries that you're familiar with mm-hmm. and limitations of individuals in the store as well. Uh, hand sanitizers everywhere as usual, um, what we've always had. Um, and just, it just looks a little bit different Um But uh, it is the same pharmacy.
0: Okay. And, of course, uh, the the modification simply made for everyone's uh, safety and health. And I'm sure a lot of people come in and take a look at all of this plexiglass and plastic sheeting and all the rest of it and go, oh, my gosh, and then take a deep breath and go, thank you. Yes, they do. And then they place an order for a prescription.
2: (laughs) Absolutely, but they say, uh, they think uh, they're buying a movie ticket or something right now.
0: Indeed, I'm sure they do. <laughs> Let's talk about testing, can we, yeah, Mona, for a few sure. minutes? Because, of course, uh, we're hearing from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Mr. Dix and the Premier that uh, the, the object of the exercise is to test as many British Columbians as humanly possible in the weeks ahead. Uh, are pharmacists involved actively in the testing and screening process for COVID-19?
2: More for screening. Um, So we're help. help. We're definitely here. When you look at our website, thepharmasave.com, for example, um, there's COVID information portal. You can find information from links to self-assessment tools. You can also look at our, our lovely BC HealthLink BC links. And on there, there's also a link for a BC self-assessment tool. Um, you don't have to call 811 anymore uh, for a referral to be tested, for example. Um, but there is everything on there for collection center finders, etc. On there. So as a role as a pharmacist, we definitely, when you call in as a patient, we can screen you, uh, provide advice of what to do, where to go, if needed
0: to. Mm-hmm, indeed, and it's a very good website too, Pharmasave.com, friends. And here's one question: We talked about home delivery a few moments ago Mona but let's zoom in specifically on individuals who have been for whatever reason told to confine to quarters you must Mm -hmm. quarantine for 14 days and if you're on medication you're going to have to make arrangements you're not allowed out so obviously you talk to a few of those people do don't you
2: Yeah, so um, that's no more different uh, than any other deliveries we make, except that we do uh, essentially put on our protective equipment. Um, Some of us do have some now, which is great. Uh, So essentially, we have to protect the safety of the patient as well as the safety of the staff when we, we go in to deliver certain medications.
0: Yeah. And and on the website, you talk about, uh, you ask, uh, you provide uh, responses to what I'm sure are your most frequently asked questions. And we're talking about testing. I'm sure a lot of people come to their pharmacy. And one of the first questions they have for the pharmacy in the course of saying hello, and here's my prescription, may I get this renewed, please, uh, is, should I be tested? And if so, how do I go about being tested?
2: Well, it mostly is, um, you know, anybody with more COVID-like symptoms, like mild symptoms, like a cold or, or, you know, fever, et cetera, um, but do call beforehand before even showing up at a doctor's office or even at the the pharmacy to ensure that, uh, you know, um, that the individual isn't as sick as can be uh, so that you're protecting everybody, essentially. And then from there, we do um, direct uh, accordingly of where to go.
0: And also uh, on that same thought line, Mona, uh, and again, I'm looking at the PharmaSave website, and, and one thing that we're becoming, we just got an email here at the radio station. You'll find find this a little interesting, I hope. All of us, all of us in this company have been requested by no less than the president of the company to take five days off between now and the end of June. It's going to mean a little juggling on some, some some staffing of shows, but this is a mental health thing, and it's a corporate mm. directive that we're... We're all going to have to um, follow. So, I'm wondering, and you dedicate some of your website to maintaining your mental wellness, and you talk about minimizing stress and the uncertainty of it all. Let's yeah. talk about that a little bit more from a pharmacist's point of view.
2: From a pharmacist's point of view, it's so important to, um, you know, for patients to look at their mental health. Uh, uh, and have breaks uh, for the patients. Uh, have a little bit of a walk around as well, as, as Dr. Henry said, like going out to take some fresh air in is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, what's really important right now is, you know, uh, loss of jobs, different moods are happening. Um, and as you all know, there's a dual public health crisis happening in, in BC as well with um, the opioid overdose Absolutely. crisis as well. So everything together is so important where if something is wrong, I always say, and my mom's always said this too, if something's wrong, reach out, ask somebody. It could be your pharmacist, it could be your friends, it could be your physician, it could be your provider, your nurse, whoever it is. Um, if you need help, call somebody uh it is it is very important to do that simply because um there's so much stressors around uh right now
0: absolutely, and it may not just be in the form of a pill i'll just call the drugstore they'll have a pill for this. Mm-hmm. It may not be something that simple, but initiating the call uh, establishing contact is the key isn't it it is. So let's, uh, let's uh, and of course, you uh, as a pharmacist, uh, listening to an individual and talking about uh, mental wellness and that sort of thing, and stress and coping with the uncertainty of all of this, you're not able to prescribe medication, especially on the phone, are you?
2: We're not, but we're able to be um, able to contact and connect your prescribers, for example, or give you different resources to go to uh, if needed. Right. Um, so we're basically the bridging um, individual in your healthcare team. We're frontline. We're definitely accessible. Uh, we definitely are very knowledgeable about what's out there. So we can bridge uh, to find out where you can get help because it is so important in terms of overdoses and things. If you have friends um, that you're concerned about, and uh, we all know in British Columbia actually, um, we actually, all pharmacies mostly have naloxone kits. Mm-hmm. If needed, come pick one up. It's not linked to an individual, uh, so that's also very important, especially in the context of the dual emergencies happening.
0: Absolutely. Mona Kwong, thank you very much for doing this with us this morning, and let me just recommend the, your website, com to our listeners one more time. Tons of really good, useful information. Thanks, Mona. We'll talk again. I'm Sterling Fox. Mario Canseco is going to join us in just a couple of minutes. His company, Research Company, has just published a new survey on easing COVID-19 restrictions. And here in British Columbia, uh, this week with uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and Premier Horgan, Finance Minister Carol James, following up a day or so later, laying out a roadmap for... Reintroducing Us to Daily Life. Phase two begins in BC on May 19th. That is the Tuesday after the long weekend, which is next weekend. Mother's Day this weekend, next weekend is the long weekend, and the Tuesday after that, phase two kicks in. So while most Canadians agree with plans outlined by our province or Ontario or every other province, few of us think certain services should be available this month. Canadians are holding different views on easing COVID-19 restrictions. We know this because of the fine homework Done by our next guest, Mario Conseco, president of a research company here in Vancouver. Mario, good morning.
3: Good morning, sir, and Great to be here.
0: It's good to have you with us. Always fun to have a chat with you, Mario. You get uh, you get around the country very skillfully and very quickly, and a lot. And uh, in the last few days of April, you conducted a, a, a trans Canada survey about how we feel about easing of COVID-19 restrictions as different provinces finally come around to announcing their schedule of resumption. So let's take a look at the big picture first Mario and then we'll zoom in on BC.
3: Definitely, uh, it's an interesting situation because what we see right now is a sense of caution from most Canadians. I think there's definitely a situation where people are happy with the response Uh, that we have seen from specific levels of a a government. Um, But there is a very cautious optimism related to what we should be doing before the end of the month as we try to get back to life as it was before COVID-19.
0: Interesting stuff. So while uh, in theory, for example, we may like the idea of having the option to go out for dinner, which is something a lot of us like to do and none of us have been able to do for a couple of months, even if the option is suddenly available to us on May 19th or afterwards, not all of us are going to rush off to the restaurants, are we? Uh,
3: that is exactly right. Uh, we find a situation where there's only 28% of Canadians who believe that coffee shops should be allowed to open for dining service uh, before the end of May. Similar numbers when it comes to dining service for restaurants are 25%. So, what this tells us is there's Roughly seven out of 10 Canadians who, even if this is available to them, are not going to necessarily do it. Um, There's definitely a situation where residents are happy with the fact that they see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. Mm -hmm. But once this is already uh, there for them, uh, you know, we're not going to have a rush of residents trying to get a haircut, trying to go out and have dinner. Um, there's definitely more cautious optimism when it comes to the way most Canadians feel about it, and this is quite uh, interesting in the sense that even though you're happy with the fact that this is ending in a way, sure. um, you're not going to, you know, book that uh, haircut uh, the next day. You're not going to go to your favorite restaurant as quickly as many people would have expected. You know, what we see here is definitely Canadians saying this is great. But I'm still going to wait a little bit longer before I go to a restaurant.
0: And boy, is that ever not welcome news for the restaurant industry, is it, Mario? At a time when they're literally down on their knees, uh, still incapable of, of, of making food for anybody at the moment beyond takeout, of course. Uh, they, they want to know they would like to feel a little more encouraged. Because, of course, when restaurants do reopen, they're not going to be at maximum capacity. They're going to be at quite a limited capacity. Com- capacity so the question will be when they reopen when they're allowed to reopen uh, and they have only x percentage of their original seating arrangement available to them, is it going to be profitable to 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 work on half a house capacity kind of thing, and then Mario, hearing this, they may not even get a half house
3: well it's definitely going to be complicated, so I think for for two reasons. Uh, we asked about this at the start of April, and we saw that 40% of Canadians are not ordering takeout at all because they believe that they could get infected. So many of these things have to do with the fears that many Canadians might have about this. You know, we haven't heard a lot of messaging coming out of levels of a, a government or out of the industry, uh, frankly, related to the fact that there's an infinitesimal Uh, opportunity for you to get infected because you order takeout. But we still see two out of five Canadians saying, I'm not doing this. So you're trying to get by by allowing people to buy uh, your food or or to have it delivered. And there's many of them who are saying that they won't do it. Now we face the other situation. You need a full house. You have 18 tables. You want to have them full of people from five to eight. If you're only going to be opening a restaurant that has six or seven tables, it's going to be very difficult to make that work because there's no expectation that whoever is actually charging your rent is going to be, uh, you know, have a situation that will make them go, uh, yes, you know, we will definitely charge you less than we used to do before. So it's not really uh, something that is going to be easy to solve. And ultimately, it has to do more than anything with the opportunity for residents to go out there and do it. And right now we see that there's only one out of five, one out of four sometimes, depending on where you live, who are willing to go to restaurants before the end of May. So what's the
0: driving uh a motivator here is that are we simply are we just simply afraid i mean canadians are typically and i'm being very generalizing here but we're typically conservative cautious people uh, and uh, we we hesitate generally and take a look before we plunge into things so is this just us being canadian and being a little even more cautious what's the driving emotion mario
3: it's definitely that. I think what we've seen since we started asking about COVID-19, uh, at first, uh, when we asked about this back in March, uh, it, there was definitely a sense of fear for most residents. Now it's a combination of sadness and fear. We ask Canadians how they feel about the outbreak. 66% say they feel sad, 64% say they feel a little bit of fear. Uh, anger and angst are way down the list, mm. at 32% and 27%. So it's more the fact that we are heading into a situation that is unknown. Uh, You see what is happening in other countries, for instance, and it definitely shows that Canada has done better. When We've asked Canadians to rate uh, the way in which our own uh, governments have been handling this. Uh, The numbers are quite superior to what we see for other countries, um, but it doesn't mean that everything is fine. And I think part of the problem is that we're heading into the summer. It's a time when most Canadians want to go out go to specific places um, it's going to be more difficult to try to handle those emotions. So you ask somebody at the start of May or at the end of April about where they would go to a restaurant, and the numbers are going to be quite different, uh, sorry, quite a, a difference from what you will see in June or July when, you know, it's been a lot of time. Under lockdown
0: and you want to go out there yeah now let's uh, we've only got a minute or so left it's always fun to talk to you too mariel as we mentioned let's zoom in on bc are we any different here in british columbia in terms of our attitudes towards uh releasing or, or re returning to some semblance of normal easing these restrictions are bc people any different from canadians in other parts of the country in terms of our reactions to all of this
3: Well, it's very similar to what we see at the national level. We have 55% of BC residents who agree with the plan to ease restrictions related to COVID-19, 36% who disagree. Now, what is interesting to me looking into these numbers is the level of strong agreement is only 3%. So Mm -hmm. you have a lot of people who are saying, okay, let's figure it out. This is what the government wants to do, and we need to be very cautious. But again, it doesn't mean that we want to open everything necessarily. Uh, The numbers are quite low when it comes to British Columbians who would go to get a haircut, for instance. It's only 28%. So this massive influx of people who are supposed to be going to restaurants or to get a haircut or maybe try to go to the movie theater if it opens, it's not going to be as easy as a lot of people expect. It's going to take uh, probably another two, three weeks for most British Columbians to say, I'm ready to do this. It's been a very difficult lockdown, and I think we should be more cautious than just necessarily doing something because it is now available for
0: Interesting us. stuff, and scruffy looking, perhaps, Mario, but cautious nonetheless, right?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think this is what we're seeing. I think there's an understanding uh, that the situation is going to get better. We're not at the stage that we've seen in some parts of the United States where people are out there walking out oh, yeah. and they want to reopen things. So we have that Canadian uh, caution, if you will, especially when we compare it to what is happening in the United States.
0: Interesting stuff. Mario, always a pleasure. And you do such fine work. It's great to talk to you again. And uh, doubtless, we'll we'll do this again real soon. Thank you for this this morning.
3: Definitely. We will keep
0: it going. Our next guest is joining us from Gabriola Island, where he is, uh, well, he's the big guy behind Sweet Rock Farm. And we're here to talk about, well, seed change and the need to preserve seeds. Uh, It's a pleasure to welcome Sal Dominelli to the program. Sal, good morning. Good morning. It's good to have you with us today. I was just looking at uh, your bio uh, online there, Sal, and and one of the things that comes up uh, is in the Q&A section. The very last question that you're asked on your bio is, any tips or lessons you could share with a new or home gardener uh, seed saver to help them succeed? And you say, start small start with your favorite crop to grow and eat and that's uh that's a pretty great set of advice know uh, it's like writing you know write what you know about so if you want to start planting and gardening go with stuff you're familiar with right
4: yeah absolutely i would also add um uh good food comes from good seed and that means uh trying to source heirloom varieties um trying to get locally adapted seeds from local growers, because uh, when you buy commercial seed from large seed companies, it's usually been bred with large amounts of fertilizers inputs that makes it uh, not so conducive to home growing. For example, like if you like most say broccoli seed that's grown mm-hmm. around the world today is grown by large multinational companies um, and and the broccoli seeds are hybrids and they uh they're used to being grown in vast monocultures with large amounts of water and fertilizer and pesticides whereas if you get locally adapted seed from a local grower it's usually an heirloom variety that's been it's been grown in one place for a long time mm-hmm. and uh uh, they 've got large, vigorous root systems they 're used to getting you know nibbled on by pests and uh, and they 're made to produce um, you know we 've all had the experience as gardeners buying seed that just doesn 't perform very yeah, well for sure, yeah, yeah, and we always think it 's our fault yet it 's quite often not it 's it 's the seed that it 's the seed that we 've bought and uh um unless you 're growing uh you know, with large amounts of fertilizer and growing it just like the monocultures that where the seed was produced, it doesn't perform well in our home gardens.
0: Interesting stuff. I wanted to find out from you on a personal level, Sal, when all Mm -hmm. of this started to make sense to you, when you you recognized the the need for local seed, the organic, uh, locally produced heirloom, to use your word, variety of seeds. How long ago did that become important to you and how did you find out about it?
4: Well, it started, uh, I guess it's a gradual process, but I guess about uh, 20 years ago when I was sort of getting more heavily into gardening, I started saving my own seeds. And uh, like most gardeners, I would go back to the seed catalog the following year to get more seeds. Yep. And, uh, and the variety that I wanted, in this case, it was a bean variety, didn't, it wasn't being offered anymore. And uh, and i couldn't find it anywhere and so luckily i had some i had saved just a few seeds just um uh by happenstance but uh so i started saving it and then growing it out and uh offering it around to friends because it wasn't being offered anymore and uh uh that sort of stimulated my interest in in growing more seed and uh and uh, realized and i realized that um uh, seeds are a commodity like like everything else, mm-hmm. and if you're a big seed company, you you sort of you know you develop a variety, and then if it doesn't sell after a few years, you drop it and and, and move uh, on. Sure. And, and move on, yeah. So,
0: uh, so that's
4: what's got it going. There's been
0: there's there has been a, a movement, and I, I I think it's probably at least half a century old, if not more, where there are certain points on the planet, Sal, where people, scientists, and agricultural researchers have dedicated their careers and their lives to amassing seeds, collecting uh, enormous collections of seeds of, of every description. Uh, this is uh, for. A Human survival purposes, as well as research and so on, are you in any way connected through the uh, BC Eco Seed Co-op? Are you in any way connected to that movement?
4: Uh, yeah, um, I guess in a sm- in a small way. Like I've got, I grow, um, I grow uh, my seeds. I have my own collection of seeds, and I um, I share them out and pass them around. And as part of the BC Eco Seed Co-op, I'm uh, we we offer seeds on our, on our website for Mm -hmm. sale. And, uh, um, but I think the best um, preservation of seeds is in the hands of gardeners around the world. You know, when, when a gardener saves seeds from that tomato plant and then plants it year after year in their garden, it, it adapts and changes to suit um, that environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, all gardeners saved their seeds, sure. and most farmers did too. And and it's only in the last in the last you know few decades that we've started buying all our seeds. And and uh, the best preservation tool for humanity is for gardeners to start saving their own seeds.
0: Interesting to say nothing of, you know, seeds are not the, usually the most expensive commodity in the store, but nonetheless, anytime you can save money and particularly save quality in the process, it's a double mm-hmm. win, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Totally. So, how um, I'm just looking at the, at the website for the the BC uh, Eco Seed uh, uh, Group, and uh, one of the articles that's most recently been written within the last week or so is how BC seed growers like yourself, Sal, are farming in the face of COVID nineteen. Have you had to modify your farming techniques or practices in the wake of this pandemic? Well, it's funny. It's funny
4: that you asked that because you know, things haven't in, in terms of my farming practices, almost nothing has changed. Okay. Uh, uh, we're, we're a family operation. And so, so, uh, you know, we just do our thing. And, uh, what has changed, however, is, is marketing. Uh, you, I don't know if you've heard of CD Saturdays, but they're, they're an event, um, that is, uh, all across Canada in the early months of the year, January to May. Mm-hmm. And, um, Um, most of them were canceled this year because like all all big events they they um because of the pandemic but but uh, so i i just serendipitously i started a website in january and um and it just took off like wildfire um so i've been doing lots of online sales but very few well the cd saturdays were all canceled so so that was a big change for me but but in terms of actual practices you know, I'm still I'm I'm alone out in the field doing my thing.
0: Right, and what what's the website that you started? That uh, th- this is for marketing purposes. What's the address? Uh sweetrockfarm.ca. Oh, okay. So it's it's your own uh, Gabriola Island farm then yep yep and do you now uh i wanted to know about uh, farmers markets because uh, i know the white rock farmers market is open this weekend and various uh other markets are trying to reopen and of course we've now had our our roadmap from dr henry and the premier in uh, the last couple of days as to what to expect in terms of reopening um but uh, are you able to sell your seeds uh through farmers markets and and various other uh, smaller venues like that
4: yeah yeah our farmers' market is open uh i think it's opening on the may long weekend like like normal and uh but but like all farmers' markets there's gonna be changes in the in the ways that uh we serve people and you know how people go in it's not gonna be a big social event sure. like they like they usually are and and i'm not sure exactly how it is right now but uh but uh yeah so that's uh that's what's going on there.
0: Well, according to the website, it's not too late to uh, plant many types of seeds. In fact, the planting season is in full swing, and you already out of stock of some varieties, but still got lots of selection, that sort of thing. So obviously, if you're already out of stock on some varieties, Sal, uh, things are going well. Yeah,
4: things are great. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. It just means I have to plant a whole lot more this year, but uh, I'm good with that it's, it's been pretty, it's been a pretty good year so far.
0: And what sort of seeds do you specialize in? Uh, Again, you talked about your original motivator for getting into this whole end of farming was a particular variety of beans. I suspect that's probably still a big seller.
4: Um, well, it's not a huge seller, but the bean is called black cocoa and it's, uh, well you you know what you know those black turtle beans that you see in the supermarket mm-hmm. it's it's similar to that but bigger more productive and it's it's adapted to uh to a northern climate so you can plant the seeds around this time of the year and grow them out and and harvest the dry pods and uh, so you can make your own uh refried beans or beans for stew and stuff and uh um not a lot of people want to grow uh refried beans but but uh it is a steady seller, and it is something that I grow every year because we use it at home. So, uh, but there's lots of. I
0: guess what would be my special. I was just going to say, what's your big seller, Sal?
4: <clears throat> uh, carrots are a big seller. Watermelon, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I grow lots of watermelon seed, and uh, and that's always a big seller. And tomatoes. Everybody loves the, the heirloom tomatoes. Sure. Yeah. So those are. Those are always uh, popular.
0: And, and just, just so we're timing it out right here on this uh, second weekend of May, it is bang on the middle of uh, planting season. It's uh, far from too late. In fact, it's probably just the right time right now. It's warm weather this weekend. Uh, maybe dig a few holes and pop some seeds in the ground, right? Absolutely, yeah. Get out there and get your fingers in the soil. Good stuff. I'm planning on doing a little of that myself this afternoon. Sal Dominelli, thanks very much for joining us and uh, continued good luck. I hope you have a great growing season this summer. Yes, thank you very much. Sal Dominelli from Sweet Rock Farms over there on Gabriola Island. And BC Seed Farmers, you can find out lots more about them. Just Google uh, BC Seed Growers and uh, lots of great information, including Sal and his company.